You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. exception to when he speaks about Abraham, when he speaks about Joseph and Moses, when he talks about the promised land, and when he talks about the temple, the revered place of worship. Can you imagine if somebody was attacking that? And they're like, oh, what's going on? But through it all, through this history lesson that Stephen was giving, the Holy Spirit was convicting the council, and it was very unpleasant for them. You see, this is what God's Word does. God's Word does exactly what's happening with Stephen and the council. God's Word will always support transformation. As you listen to today's message from Pastor Dave, he explains to you that God meets you where you're at, but He always challenges you toward growth. He desires for you to transform, so He will bring challenge through His Word to you. Lean in to what He's leading you to. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 7 as he begins his message. Are you stiff-necked? going to be in Acts 7. We're going to be taking care of three major verses this week, 51 through 53. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 7, verses 51 through 53. Okay, I'm going to read aloud. If you would read along silently, please. Acts 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. George Whitefield. How many of you have ever heard of George Whitefield? Oh, cool. He was an Anglican priest in England who helped spread the Great Awakening. He was responsible for helping to spread this Great Awakening that was happening in Britain. And it also happened in the colonies here in the North America in the 18th century. He was one of the founders of Methodism, and he also was one of the founders of the evangelical movement in general. He became best known as a preacher in Britain and America in the 18th century, and because he traveled all through the American colonies and he drew these great crowds, he was one of the most widely recognized preachers and public figures in all of colonial America. Sadly, he's largely forgotten today, but George Whitefield was arguably one of the most famous religious figures in all the 18th century. Newspapers used to call him the marvel of the age. He was a very capable preacher, and he commanded thousands on two continents with the sheer power of his oratory, with his speech. In his lifetime, it is estimated that he preached 18,000 times to as many as 10 million people. And these were no ordinary sermons, my friends. He portrayed the lives of the biblical people and the biblical characters with realism. He portrayed them like no one had ever seen before. He cried, he danced, he screamed. Among those who were taken by him, who were enthralled by him, was a man named David Garrick. And he was a very, very famous actor in Britain at that time. And this is what he says. He said, I would give a hundred guineas if I could say, oh, like Mr. Whitefield. When preaching on eternity, Whitefield suddenly stopped one day 
And he looked around and he exclaimed this. He said, hark, methinks I hear the saints chanting their everlasting hallelujahs and spending an eternal day and echoing forth triumph songs of joy. And do you not long, my brethren, to join this heavenly choir? Another time, he was speaking on the inefficiency of works for salvation. And one of his listeners recorded this for the press. All of a sudden, he cried out in a tone of thunder, works, works. A man gets to heaven by works? I would soonest think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. The following morning, he died. Once Whitefield preached to the church in the English colonies for three consecutive nights, and the title of his message for three consecutive nights was, You Must Be Born Again. And he preached it with vigor, and he preached it so intensely that several of the elders came back after one of his preaching and says, Mr. Whitefield, why are you preaching You Must Be Born Again? Whitefield turned around and looked this way, looked that way, looked at him and said, because you must be born again. He was obviously, he was a strident preacher when he preached. What does that mean? It means he was loud. It means he was harsh. It means he was grating on his audience. It means he would present this message in a very, very forceful way. Sometimes to the point of being unpleasant. For the past several weeks, we've been studying Stephen and Stephen's defense to the council. Stephen's been preaching to the council now for a long, long time. Like Whitefield, this was no ordinary sermon. He made his defense against the false accusations that had been brought before the council towards him. And remember when we studied Acts 6, we looked at verses 11, 13, and 14, and we said this about these accusations. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Just like George Whitefield, Stephen is a strident preacher. He's strident in his history lesson. He's loud. He's harsh. And his words start to grate on the council. They're starting to grate on them. He's presenting a point of view which not only is controversial, it's never been heard of before. It's a point of view that is so foreign to these listeners this is possibly as far as they can be. It goes against the grain of everything they've been taught, all their traditions, all their rituals. But Stephen is hammering home the point. You ever been in a sermon when the pastor's preaching and all of a sudden you think he's preaching to you and you go, you start to squirm? Because the message is like hitting home and you're like, oh, you're looking around the room like, who's he talking to? <laughs> you know? And you're, well, this is what's happening here. These guys are starting to squirm in their seat as Stephen pounds home the points, as he attacks the sacred cows of Judaism, as he points out one after another that they're wrong in their beliefs on how to get salvation, that they're wrong in everything they know. He's grating. He's really grating on them. But they can't take their eyes off Stephen. They're riveted to Stephen. And he's speaking steadfastly, and his face is glowing like that of an angel. Can't you see him taking exception to when he speaks about Abraham, when he speaks about Joseph and Moses? when he talks about the promised land, and when he talks about the temple, the revered place of worship, can you imagine if somebody was attacking that? And they're like, oh, what's going on? But through it all, through this history lesson that Stephen was giving, the Holy Spirit was convicting the council, and it was very unpleasant for them. You see, this is what God's Word does. God's Word does exactly what's happening with Stephen and the council. The writer of Timothy, Paul, wrote to his dear son Timothy in the faith the second time, and in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17, this is what he said. He said, all Scripture 
is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul continues in the next chapter, in chapter 4, and he says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead as appearing of his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth, and be turned aside to fables. Paul's declaring, this is what the Word of God is for. This is what the Word of God is supposed to do. When we listen to it, the Holy Spirit does something in our lives, and He makes it profitable to us. And if you look at these verses clear enough, Paul's declaring the purpose of the Bible. This is what the Bible is supposed to do. The Bible is supposed to enable us to have a correct, systematic understanding of who God is, of who Jesus is as the Messiah, of who the Holy Spirit is. Our relationship is man to God, the plan of redemption, and the hope for a heavenly future. The Bible enables us to know God and how we should live by His Word. The Word of God reproves us if we go astray from the straight path that He's placed us on. And the Word of God centers us onto that narrow pathway towards holiness. The Bible corrects us when we're wrong or when we're doing wrong. The Word of God is used to instruct us as how to live rightly and how to live that our lives might be pleasing to God. And that we might have fellowship, not only with God, but live in harmony one to another. The Bible teaches us that. The Word of God is essential for obtaining spiritual maturity. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. That we might become thoroughly furnished for every good work, so we might be equipped to be all that God has called us to be, to do all that God has called us to do. When the Word of God comes into our heart, it gives us power over sin. In Psalm 119, verse 11, it says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. But something's happening with the council. Something's happening in the council. As Stephen speaks, he's seeing the council. He's seeing their reaction. The Word of God is not accomplishing something in them. It's not accomplishing what it's supposed to be accomplishing. Their hearts are hardened. They're stiff, and they don't want to move. They're not believing, and, and he realizes that they're not rejecting him. They're rejecting the one God sent. They're rejecting Jesus Christ again and again. And he gets really, really angry, and he cries out in this loud voice, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so you do also. Trust me on this, folks. If there's one thing the council heard that day, they heard this. They might not have listened to anything else that Paul was saying, but when he spoke these words, their eyes lit up, and they heard it, and they were angered beyond belief. Stephen chooses several phrases here that are all too familiar with the council. The phrase stiff-necked, the phrase uncircumcised in hearts and ears, and the phrase resisting the Holy Spirit. In fact, the term stiff-necked is not new at all. It appears some 20 times in the Old Testament. 20 times in the Old Testament, the children of Israel are called stiff-necked. This is never a positive thing, by the way. It's never a positive thing when they're called stiff-necked. God himself called them stiff-necked. God himself declares them in Exodus 29 verse, excuse me, in Exodus 32 verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. God himself is causing, calling Israel stiff-necked. And in the very next verse, God decides that he's going to wipe out the entire nation. 
and start over because of their stiff-neckedness. Because they were stiff-necked. God was going to wipe them out. He was going to wipe them out and start completely over. If you look at the next verse in verse 10, now therefore let me alone. He's talking to Moses. That I may, my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make you a great nation. He's saying, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to kill every single one of them. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And I'm going to make it another nation. That's how mad he was about them being stiff-necked. That's how mad he was and that's how strongly he feels about this type of people. What does it mean to be stiff-necked? Well, with the help of Webster's 1828 Dictionary, I found these things. To be stiff-necked means to be stubborn. It means to be inflexibly obstinate and um, contemptuous. Contemptuous means literally swelling or haughty. Obstinate, perverse, stubborn, inflexible, unyielding, disobedient. (laughs) Stubborn means to be unreasonably obstinate, inflexibly fixed in opinion, not to be moved or persuaded by reasons, inflexible. Obstinate means to be stubborn. You see the picture here? You get get to feel here, perniciously adhering to the opinion and purpose, fixed firmly in resolution, not yielding. And unyielding means unbending, unpliant, stiff, firm, obstinate. These are not flattering words. These are not good things to be said. But I have to ask you, does any of these words describe your relationship with the Lord? Do any of these words now describe your relationship with the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Have you truly given everything that you can give to the Lord? Have you presented your life and said, Lord, here's my life, take it all? Or are you holding back some things? Are you holding back some things because there's some stubbornness in you? Oh, there's a lot of stubbornness in my flesh. There's some stubbornness in my flesh that the Lord likes to work on. Okay, Dave, we're going to work on this. Oh, not that one. Yeah, we're going to work on that one. And if I don't yield it to him, he starts working on something else. But guess what? Sooner or later, he comes back and goes, Dave, we're going to work on that one again. Not that one. He always wants to work on those things in our lives. You know, there's a saying that goes, it's quite simply, he is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Hmm. Have you given him your entire life? Every single part of you? That's what Stephen's accusing them of doing. You obstinate, stubborn people. You inflexible people. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. You always are doing the wrong things just like your fathers, he's saying. He accuses them of being uncircumcised in their hearts and in their ears. Prophet Jeremiah describes this in 926 of his, uh, his book. He says, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness for all these nations are uncircumcised and the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Uncircumcised in the heart. See, the rite of circumcision was given to Abraham, but it was intended as a spiritual thing. It was intended as a spiritual thing. It was the idea of cutting away the flesh life. You weren't to live after the flesh any longer. You were to walk and live after the Spirit. It was a mark of a people who were to be a spiritual people and a people who were to be spiritually oriented. And they were supposed to be spiritually minded in contrast to the fleshly man or the worldly man who wants only the material things, who wants only the pleasures of this world, the materials of this world. There's a difference there. God's people weren't supposed to be dominated by the materialistic things. They weren't supposed to be dominated by fleshly things. They were a people that were supposed to be dominated by what is spiritual. The sign of the spiritual covenant that God gave them was circumcision. But Israel kept that covenant physically in a great way. Every eighth day, the children were circumcised. They kept that covenant, but only in a physical way, not in a spiritual way. And Paul, through his epistles, brings out the whole inconsistency of this ritual apart from the reality of the law. 
It's, is it possible for today for people to have certain religious rituals and not have the reality of the relationship with God? Is that possible? Are they just going through the motions? Are they just going through these rituals day after day? I just come to church because that's what I do on Sunday. Or is there something else in your life? Isn't this what Christ told the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.4? You've left your first love. You're going through the Martians. You're doing all these things, but you've left your first love. Where are you in your relationship with me? It's possible that people today could be in the same state as the children of Israel were. If they're depending upon some things outwardly. They're outward things instead of the reality of God, who is interested in only what happens in your heart. God is only interested in what happens, what happens in your heart. And so he said, circumcise therefore the flesh of your heart. And Paul picks up on this in Romans in the second chapter and says, the true circumcision is not of the flesh, but of the heart. Get rid of the fleshly part of your heart and spiritualize it. Be ye holy as I am holy, he said. That's what he's talking about here. It's my heart alienated from a life of the flesh. I have to put the flesh down, reckon the old man dead, leave the flesh behind. My heart no longer longing after things of the flesh, but a heart that now longer longs after God. What does that look like, Dave? I want to know what the life of that looks like. David said it perfectly in Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul is after thee, O my God. Is that your desire for God? Is that your desire for God, panting after him like you're, you're so thirsty? The psalmist in, in 63, verse 1 says, my soul, my soul thirsts for thee, as in a dry and parched land. Do you thirst for God like you need a drink of water? Do you thirst for God like you're in sometimes? I mean, come on, you've been out there. It's been a hot summer. Maybe you're doing something, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, man, am I thirsty? i got to have that drink of water. Is that how you are towards God? i got to have God in my life. i got to let him do what he needs to do. This is the kind of people God is looking for, those who are spiritually minded. Those who are spiritually oriented, those who are thirsting after him with their heart and in their life and wanting to live a spiritual life that's dedicated to him, these are the kind of people that God wants, and these are the kind of people that God uses. These are the kind of people that he wants us to be. Stephen seems to take these two phrases, stiff-necked and uncircumcised, and adds them together. Could he be referring to Deuteronomy 10.16 when it says, The Lord says, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. This theme is constantly repeated throughout the prophets. In Jeremiah 4.4, he says, Circumcise yourself to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. To fulfill God's law, it takes more than being given a command. It takes inner transformation. A transformation that only God can do, only by His Holy Spirit. So my question would be is, are you yielded to the Holy Spirit today to allow Him to do what needs to be done in your life? God commanded Israel to do something. And he commanded them to do something that only he could do. God's not asking you to do something on your own. He's going to give you help. He's giving you the Holy Spirit to do it for you. But you have to allow him to do it. This inner transformation. And he's compelled to seek this inner work. But Israel resisted him. Israel resisted God. Stephen continues. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so you did also in 751b. Just like their fathers. They were not only not influenced by the methods God took to reform them, but they engaged and were incensed against him. In fact, they did everything opposite of what they were supposed to do. They came against God. They resisted the Holy Spirit in several ways. First of all, they resisted the Holy Spirit speaking to them by the prophets, whom they opposed and contradicted. They hated. They ridiculed. I mean, read in Hebrews 11, in the Hall of Faith, what they did to the prophets. They sawed them in half. They stoned them. They boiled them in water, boiling water. 
They did horrible things to the prophets who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak God's word into their, into their lives. They resisted the Holy Spirit. Secondly, their fathers resisted the spirit of the prophet that God raised up. They stoned them. They did everything. To, and they resisted Christ and the ministers because, look, right now, Stephen's on trial. They're still resisting what God is trying to do. Thirdly, they resisted the Holy Spirit, striving with them on their own consciences. They would not comply with the convictions of the dictates them. Is God convicting you of something today? Is God telling you about something that needs to be changed in your life? Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be stubborn. Don't be obstinate toward God. You can have your pity party. You can have your screaming, yell, and holler like a little kid and pound your feet and pound your arms, but God will just walk away from you and say, I'll be back. You do that for a while. God wants to change you. Why does he want to change you? So that you can minister to others, so that you can be a joy, that you can be a light, so the gospel message will come out of you. He wants to make you equipped for every good work, thoroughly equipped, it says. They resisted the striving with their own consciences. The Spirit strove with them as it did in the old world, but in vain. It struggled with them, and they, they resisted. You know, there's always something sinful in our hearts that always resists the Holy Spirit. I said that before. It's a flesh that lusts against the Spirit. Paul says they're at enmity one to another. The Spirit and the flesh are fighting. There's a war going on for control of this body. But if we would just give to God, if we would allow God access to our bodies, if we would give full reign to the Holy Spirit over our hearts, then the fullness of time came, this resistance would be, would be able to overcome and we would be able to overpower the sinful nature. We would be able to stand forth and say, no, I serve God and God alone. We would have that power, the Holy Spirit with us. We would be able to bring every thought into captivity, as it says in 2 Corinthians. When you resist the Holy Spirit, you resist the work of God in your life. It's like actually telling God, I don't want that. You don't want what God wants for you? You don't want the best in the whole wide world? No, Lord, I'd rather be sitting here eating this garbage than having that filet mignon. I like snooping around in the garbage. I don't want that filet. You can keep that for yourself. But that's what we're telling God when we don't want the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're telling Him that we don't want that. We're saying no to God. We're being stiff-necked. We're saying no, I don't want it, God. Is that what we're telling in Acts 7, 52 for 53, when we finish out, it says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the directions of the angels and have not kept it. Now, his point here is unmistakable. As Israel was in its history, you are like that today. You are become betrayers and you become murderers. Israel was proud that they received the law of God. They were so proud that they had the law. That was one of their prideful things. But guess what? They didn't obey it. They didn't keep it. You've always persecuted and killed the prophets, the ones who foretold of the Messiah. And guess what? You've killed the Messiah too. Israel, you haven't changed a bit. You're stiff-necked. You're uncircumcised in the heart and ears just like your father. You are You've been listening to Pastor Dave on A Sure Hope. Pastor Dave is working his way through the book of Acts. Did you know that the first martyr for Jesus was a great man of faith? His name was Stephen, and he was bold and courageous to proclaim the name of Jesus to others. He wasn't afraid to tell the truth, even when it cost him his life. What courage in the midst of opposition! 
Do you think you could do the same in this day and age? It's hard to stand up for Jesus when everyone around you is telling you you're intolerant, unloving, and just looking to put people down if you tell them they're doing something wrong. But what makes things right or wrong is firmly rooted in Scripture. It's God's Word that should direct morality, and Stephen was unafraid to go there. If you like this message and would like to catch up on any message you may have missed, head over to AsureHopeRadio.com. There you'll find many messages from the Book of Acts, as well as other series. If you find yourself in the Cape May, New Jersey area, stop in and see us. All the information you need is on our website, location, directions, and service times. And if you prefer to call, you can do that too. Our number is 609-884-5821. Once more, that's 609-884-5821. We'd be happy to answer any questions over the phone. Well, that's all we have time for today, but we've loved spending this time with you. We look forward to the next edition of A Sure Hope. Show.